Only one more episode remains in the spring fundraiser. Your support has kept this show going now into the ninth year with more than 500 episodes in the archives. Whenever you listen to this episode, whether it is the spring of 2019 or beyond, if you like what you hear in this conversation and would like more in-person recordings like it, make a one-time donation online at paypal.me slash permaculturepodcast. If you don't like to donate online, I understand. You could also do so by post. The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. Or, if you'd like to become an ongoing monthly supporter, go to patreon.com slash permaculturepodcast and join our growing community. If you follow the show on Instagram, at permaculturepodcast, you may have seen a recent post of mine where I shared an autograph signed by Sean Mayer, who played Simon Tam on Firefly. In that autograph, he revealed one of my nicknames. And so, to Reality X Asylum and Sam Sycamore of Good Life Revival Podcast, thank you, and let's have some fun with this. This is the Permaculture Podcast. I'm Mr. Kisses. Yes, Mr. Kisses is actually one of my nicknames, given to me by a dear friend because I always carry and hand out Hershey's Kisses whenever I attend a Renaissance Fair, steampunk event, or other festival. If security wasn't so tight, I'd even hand them out at metal concerts. That's one way of saying if we ever meet at a permaculture convergence, there's a good chance you can ask me for a kiss, and I'll hand you a little piece of silver-wrapped chocolate. With that in mind, let me return you to a regular episode of the Permaculture Podcast. In this conversation moderated by Ben Weiss of Susquehanna Sustainable Enterprises and Robin Mello of Edenspore, John Darby, Allison Earle, and Wilson Alvarez discuss their work at Horn Farm Center and Regenerating the Land. This includes how they came to sustainable land management and agriculture, the dream projects they're working on, how their ancestral and cultural history impacts their work and thought processes, and they close by taking questions from the students assembled for that day's ecological design course. Enjoy this roundtable recorded live at Horn Farm Center. I'll join you again after. All right, friends, we're going to get started uh, with a a roundtable conversation here. John, Allison, and Wilson are going to talk to us, tell us some stories about what it's like as a professional in this field. Robin and I are going to serve as the moderators. We have some questions and some prompts for them, but we'll also make time for you all to ask some questions related to some of the things that they're talking about. Yeah, so my name is John Darby. I'm the education director here at the Horn Farm Center. Allison Earl, executive director. Uh, Wilson Alvarez, Woodland Steward. I feel for the sake of the podcast, I should point out that we have our field manager in the crowd as well, Andrew Horn. Wave so the podcast viewers can see you wave. That's, that's, how, that's how a podcast works, right? All right, so my first question for you all is, would you please talk a little bit about your personal challenges and successes of finding work and figuring out how to be employed in, in this field of uh, you know, regenerative agriculture and agroforestry? Great question. So my personal journey in the field of sustainable at the time and now regenerative agriculture started in 1999 when I quit my job and blew up a lot of other things in my life at the same time and decided that I was going to explore a career in, not career, a vocation in in farming. I'd always been interested, uh, my 
grandmother was a big proponent of whole foods and, and organic gardening and growing, and so that had always been a part of my life. And I had come to that point when I was, um, gosh, I can't do the math, 34, I think, when I decided that it was important that my values and my work in the world were in alignment. I ended up working on a CSA farm called Simple Gifts in Washington Borough, Lancaster County, Pennsylvania for that summer. And then it was then I realized that I didn't have uh, three big things. I didn't have money, I didn't have a support network, and I didn't like being in the sun. So I decided that I was just gonna stay a CSA member and I kept looking for ways to stay involved with and supportive of local foods in this area. So across the years that ended up being uh, as a CSA member, as a working share CSA member, seeking out local purveyors of produce, meats, cheeses, that sort of thing, um, and really spending my money as part of my, putting my money where my mouth was, was mostly what I was doing. I had a series of jobs along the way, did some CAD design work for a bridge steel bridge company. I worked for a different nonprofit in Lancaster City as an executive director. I did some website design as an independent consultant and some small business development work, all of which had skills that I learned along the way that ended up being exactly the skill set that I needed when the job of executive director at the Horn Farm Center opened up in 2015. So I had spent my time going from one job to another until last year I'd never worked anywhere longer than three years in a row because it was always meaningful to me to have that alignment. It was my core value of having my activities in the world in alignment with what was important to me and my community. I always felt a call to service. So it was at that point where the stars seemed to have aligned, where there was income involved in, I was able to match income and my activities together. It, it was in this job and I think that that the time was ripe and it really was a compelling pattern for me to find out that I had acquired all these disparate skills. I had been called names, a job jumper, you're never going to make it, non-committal, and yet yeah, I listened to that internal voice that just kept me moving in the direction I felt I had to go. Yeah, this question maybe had to stop and think of how I ended up here because it's not where I expected to end up. But um, I was talking, I think, to Will this morning about how I've always kind of measured my when I think back on time and how much time has passed, I always think about that in reference to my kids and when they were born. My daughter is 17 and my son is 14. And 17 years ago when my daughter was born, I was working for Amazon doing payroll and benefits, which meant that I spent about 50 plus hours a week in a gray cubicle. And it was kind of not where I wanted to be. So long story short, I left that and ended up selling things on eBay full time which left me 50 plus hours a week in my own house in front of a screen. So it was my kind of self-imposed cubicle. Meanwhile, I've always been in the outdoors. I've always been obsessed with food and I was always considered myself an environmentalist and wanted to do more work that I felt was actually meaningful. So I jumped a bunch of jobs myself and I became a massage therapist for many years and uh, also worked as a kayak instructor to get my outdoors time. Eventually, I decided to take a part-time job on a farm uh, as a way to just get better food into my house. And um, that turned into a more in-depth farm and I spent many years working for uh, uh, Goldfinch Farm, 
who ironically is the same farmers that ran Simple Gifts, and I met Allison years ago prior to here working at Goldfinch. But I was fortunate enough that John, who ran that farm, was extremely generous with his time and was willing to answer 6,000 questions when I had them and putting me on tasks to, to do things that I wanted to learn more about. And um, shortly after that, I decided to start my own farm. So uh, I had gotten involved here as a volunteer and we were putting together a incubator farm program that would help sort of budding farmers get established. And I figured one way to get that program started was just throw my hat in the ring and start a farm. So uh, kind of like I've made all my major life decisions, which has been on a whim. Uh, I started a farm and I ran a organic CSA farm for about five years. Um, and during those five years, I had also gotten hired by the Horn Farm part-time as farm manager. So I was running my farm on the side and working here part-time, which was a huge time and energy commitment doing both things. Uh, and I reached a point where I had to give one up. And so I was able to miraculously craft those things together into one thing. And my farm maintained here as the, as the sort of education farm on site. And uh, I became full-time as the, the education director. So I was able to kind of take my interest in working with the land and educating and growing things and eating good food and kind of put them all together. So I'm not really sure there's an equation that I could give you to say do it but I think I ended up here in a very unconventional way so if any of you are leading unconventional lives I think you're probably on the right path yeah speaking of unconventional <laughs> this is my first job that I get paid for about 10 years now I've been working for myself for a long time we uh, we decriminalized Wilson. <laughs> now I have to pay taxes and all these horrible things all right so how I got here is not through gardening like uh, I got here through primitive skills and uh, about 15 years ago, 16 years ago now, I started reading things like Derek Jensen's books and uh, sort of like anti-civ books. And that got me into saying, uh, well, I didn't, want to, I didn't want to be part of a culture that was uh, destroying the earth anymore. I didn't have any skill set to, to fix that. So I was just sort of like going along for the ride. So I, I took responsibility for myself and I started to learn the skills myself of what does that look like to hunt and what does that look like to gather and build and do all the things that you need to do as a human being on this planet. And then through that, through that sort of like search for how I could take responsibility for myself, I found permaculture uh, in biointensive gardening. So I got really into biointensive gardening, really into um, primitive skills and really into uh, permaculture at that time. I started my own business, Homegrown Edible Landscaping Company, where I would install gardens and fruit orchards for people in people's backyards. And that was like super successful, but I sucked at being a businessman and it put a lot of strain on my marriage at the time, so I decided to close it up. And then I just became a full-time sort of like carpenter, like general do-anything type, uh, build furniture and dust like that. And I've been doing that ever since. And then the, the whole time I've been working with Ben, we've put on our fifth PDC together. We've been collaborating now for about 10 years, I think. It's about 10 years now that we've been collaborating together. And then me and Ben, when we first sort of started talking together, we realized that we had this little niche in permaculture that no one was talking about, which was this semi-wild space that everyone was into the gardening and the forest gardening. And me and him were both into this section where we, we just had this love for the wild. And how does that fit with permaculture? And how does that fit with how I see the world with primitive skills? And um, I started teaching here 
four or five years ago probably, teaching my primitive skills classes through here. And then I, uh, I started teach, I taught a class on sort of how to, uh, you know, the idea of biomimicry and the idea of how to, how to work into the, in, in, the, in the forest. And through that, I started working here one day a week, then three days a week, and then starting January, a full-time gig. But I'm still not that comfortable. I'm not used to working with a lot of people, but I do pretty well. I just uh, say, am I doing okay? And I make sure that I'm used to making unilateral decisions all the time. So now when I feel like I have something, I just go, this is my idea. Is it a good idea? Is it something that we should do? Is it something that's not? That's really hard for a person like me. And I'm sure there are people out there who are like that. It's really hard for me to always default to more than one person because I'm so used to doing it myself. I took self-reliance probably to a bad place where I relied only on myself for a long time. So my lesson here, one of the big things for me is like always going back to the group with all my decisions, even if I can do it myself, going back to the group and saying, does this make sense as an organization or does this make sense of something that we should be doing together? So there is no path for me. I've been sort of a hustler for 10 years, uh, maybe more than that. I, I have that inside of me. And all of it is mostly self-taught. I've taught myself all the primitive skills that I know, most of the gardening. I'm just the type of person I can read something and learn it. I know a lot of people can't do that. Uh, I learned things before YouTube, but now YouTube is awesome. So I still love teaching. Like when I left here, every time I teach a class, I always know that that's sort of what I'm built to do because when I leave a class that I teach all day, I can't sleep where it makes my mind go. I don't get tired from teaching. So I know that that's always a thing that I need to do because it sort of gives me energy instead of taking it away. So I still teach my primitive skills classes here and I still get to do that part of my life. And I get to like really experiment here, which is awesome because I have awesome people who are, we're sort of collaborating for the first time. But again, for years, I did everything completely illegally. Like uh, I would go into the forest and do things and manipulate or plan or take things out or, you know, and I don't see anything wrong with that. It's only illegal because it's a, somebody has decided that. But for me, the earth needs me, so I keep doing that. And I keep reiterating that over and over again. I want to empower people to take responsibility for themselves like I did a long time ago, maybe with more people than I did. But uh, yeah, that's sort of my answer to that. It's a very crazy way to get here. I'm glad that I'm here now and I'm glad that I finally have people with like minds who I can collaborate with and hopefully expand my knowledge and keep my work going for you know the next 10 years or whatever it's gonna be. I'm just interested in knowing what because we touched a little bit about this, um, Wilson, if time and human resources and finances weren't your major barriers at the Horn Farm, what would your big, your biggest dream outcome, or you know, if that's too broad, what would your biggest dream project be in this space? And this is for all, for all three of you. Well, I'm pretty lucky here. I get to run a bunch of different experiments that I've been, I've either had for 10 years or I've been working on for a couple of years. So I have my Woodland Steward program of seeing like, can I take what I know and teach people in a very short period of time and know that they can go out and sort of like exponentially make myself a million times over. Since I taught myself, I don't know how to do that. So I have that program here and it's been working really well. So I got that. 
and these hyper experimental research projects that we have in collaboration with the Horn Farm and with FNM, they get to do sort of the hardcore science that I've always wanted to be able to do, where you can actually get hard data and write papers and do that. I love that part of it. And I also love the reconnection with the people that I love to see. There's not much that I would change. I mean, there was there, there would be just expansion, expansion of the research that I could do. I only have 40 hours, which is too bad. But I always, I never, when I go home, I do more research. And I come back and I do more research. And I, I overwhelm them in the morning and they have to stop me and say, good morning, Wilson. Because like, I literally, as <laughs> soon as they walk in, I'm downloading everything I've now researched for the day. So I got to answer that in that, like, um, if we had more money and more time, I would just expand on some of the things that, that I've already, that I'm already doing. There's not much that have been held back from me here as of now. We put in a lot of different systems and just in the last couple of months that have been sort of like what I've been wanting to do for many, many years. I feel like we have, we have adequate resources and actually sometimes the the perceived lack of resources is a good thing because it keeps us from going even faster. And so for me personally, my goal for the organization a number of years ago that I wrote down in some exercise that said, write, write down your big audacious goal. What, are you, what will you have accomplished by 2020? And my goal was that all 186 acres would be being managed actively toward ecological health. And we are poised to have that happen in January of 2020. So my, my big dream, to answer your question, Robin, is that we can engage enough, enough people who take personal interest and ownership, who go through our programs, meet the land, and develop a relationship with it, that they want to stay involved. And that somehow we provide the ability to have those people get financially compensated for that work in a way that allows not only them to be engaged, the land to be uh, rehabilitated, but also for this to become a model that provides yields that serve people, our economic yields, and also need yields that meet our physical needs. And I think we're on the path to that. And it's kind of amazing what intention can create. Yeah, I sort of feel like we haven't really let money hold us back here for the most part. We've tried to design systems and scenarios as we th that we think should be present, and then we find the money. I think if we had unlimited funds, I'd probably want to move towards helping to fund other projects and sort of share the wealth a little bit. Yeah, I don't know. Other than that, I think I... Maybe I'd spend less time staring at a computer screen if time wasn't an issue, but uh, there's that kind of stuff that needs done. I don't know. Yeah, I, got, I don't have anything else to add. I just wanna, I'm lucky enough to have found, it happens sometimes in your life, but it happened twice. Me and Ben are very similar, but he has a brain that's really different than mine. He's good with money, getting classes, doing that. So I got that once and I have it twice with Allison and John where they have all the things that I lack and, and I hopefully I fill in some of the things that they lack. So I was lucky enough twice in this last decade to find somebody that because I'm chaotic in a lot of ways. So I, I, uh, I definitely, I've, been, I've lucked out multiple times of finding people that sort of fill that gap that I do have, that I, and I know I do have it, but. You're, dro you're dropping like self-awareness bombs. <laughs> I don't care, I don't, I don't care. Very happy, <laughs> All right, so yeah, to keep going with the hopefully self-awareness bombs, for the three of you, 
how do you feel like or see your ancestry, your cultural history, or your ethnic background playing into your work or relating to your work? Yeah, that's a doozy. This has been a tough, that's been a tough question for me my whole life. Um, I don't know what my ancestry or ethnic background is. Like we're like a melting pot and I definitely feel like I'm a melting pot. Like I've got all kinds of strains in my family history if I follow it. I have a father's side of my family that I've never met. So I don't, I don't know half my lineage. I've definitely felt sort of tied to this bioregion. And so I think of it more in terms of that. I, I've moved around a lot. I lived in Georgia for a while. I lived in Maryland and Delaware. I always felt really unsettled and I came back here, even though I swore as a youth I was gonna get out of here. Uh, I came back and it kind of stuck. So, you know, I think of this region, I think of what feels normal and natural to me. And I have to admit that my heritage or, or lineage doesn't typically fall into my frame of thought for the most part, to be honest. It does for me. <laughs> so I spent a lot of time thinking about why I'm here in particular in York County, Pennsylvania. I grew up in New York State. I lived in Massachusetts. I was always surrounded by kind of the megalopolis intellectual book reading approach to the world, which was very uh, non-judgmental. Well, not religious, religiously non-judgmental. And so when I moved here to central Pennsylvania, uh, in 1992, so quite a while, it was a real big cultural shock to me because I found that uh, the primary relationships were among family and that making friends was really difficult if I wasn't involved in a family. So, so I had to get imaginary friends. <laughs> so I um, was trying, first of all, to find meaning in why I would be living in a place that didn't feel hospitable to me. And one of the realizations I had was when I visited Portland, Oregon in 2011, and I thought, oh my gosh, I wouldn't have to explain myself to these people. And I thought I'd be bored out of my mind. Um, I need to have impossible tasks. I really do. I need to. I, I need to have somebody say this can't be done. <laughs> oh yeah, <laughs> just watch. And um, so I have this warrior part of me that I've always wondered at and where it came from. And I was through the course of some reading that I did, and there was a book called "If Women Rose Rooted," which is about reconnecting with the folklore of the Celtic lands. And I was really struck by a couple of stories in there. I never know where I'm going when I start these things. So one of them was called The Voices of the Wells. And it's about how the, the well maidens who tended the water wells in the Celtic landscape uh, were connected to the other world. And the, other, the upper world and the other world were in um, synchronous harmony with, with each other. The land provided an abundance, and in return, the people were supposed to provide respect to the land, usually through the relationship with a king. And the king, up until the 1600s, would uh, ceremonially marry the land as part of his being put on the throne. Well, as the story goes, there was a king that was moving through the, through the land, and the well maidens were there to provide food and drink to anyone who asked for it. And this particular king took the food and the drink and then he raped the well maiden. And he did that in front of all of his men 
And so then all of the men did the same thing to the other well maidens. And they withdrew from the world and it became a wasteland. And that imagery broke my heart open. And I started to see this, this land here as the wasteland that we had inherited as a community and that I had a responsibility to start to speak for, for the wells as a woman in particular, and also to start to recognize that as the recognition of a sacred feminine is coming back into being, what we often don't talk about is that a sacred masculine isn't talked about enough and how can men be in relationship as guardians of the land as well. So you asked the question about my ancestors and so I had that as a mindset and I started thinking about my ancestry is from the Celtic Islands, Wales, Ireland, Scotland, and Southern England, and also French Canada via the western coast of France. So I have a real peasantry heritage of people connected to the earth, and I wanted to know what that felt like for the people who had passed down their experiences through my body. And so I, I came across, as I often do, the universe speaks to me mostly in books, and I came across this series of books through a podcast I was listening to actually by the woman who wrote Voices of the Wells. We want to talk about patterns and weavings and details and things. Amanda Scott is her name and she made a name for herself writing detective novels, but then she had an experience where she was called to write this series about Boudicca. The Boudicca was a woman warrior queen of the Celtic Iceni. And before and during the, as the Roman occupation was happening, so it was a series of four books, 1,600 pages that I think I devoured in two weeks, just talking about her, her life and how she and her people fought the, the Roman invasion. But mostly, and what was most compelling to me was that it wove together, there were warriors in the culture, in addition to all the artisans, but they're also dreamers. And the dreamers were the ones that were in touch with the other world. And so this was such a compelling thing to me to have that woven experience of humans still intertwined with the other world and getting information from there. So when I feel connected here, I feel like that those, those beings and those voices and those, that knowing can come through me if I'm open enough to be listening. My heritage is Puerto Rican and Cuban. So in my genes, we just got our ancestry done. So is the history and the story of colonialism and oppression and uh, all those things that come with um, 15% African-American, 15% Taino Indian, and 60% whatever from the Iberian Peninsula, which is the Spain Peninsula. So in my blood, I carry all the history of colonialism for the last 400, 500 years. I grew up in Brooklyn in the projects. I was born in the projects. I am not like my family, by the way. Um, they're all, you know, they all care about sort of the same things that sort of any urban inner city people care about. So I'm very different from them. I don't know why I'm different. I just have always been always seeking, I think, never really happy. My father was well, he's not a great man. He did something by, by moving us here out, out of Brooklyn many, many years ago. And I got to live, I got to like experience the forest and I fell in love immediately. As Soon as I left the city, I fell in love immediately and I've sort of been there ever since, not knowing what to do with it, except sort of experience and be happy with that. But my culture, like the Puerto Rican culture is a, is a fiery culture to begin with. And we carry with us a lot of the uh, sort of the trauma 
that has happened. And there's a lot of, especially in my family, there's a lot of like abuse and there's a lot of, I grew up in an incredibly abusive, uh, my father was incredibly violent as a, as a father and his father was incredibly violent. So no, nothing wrong. All my family grew, grew up that way. So I was really scared to have a kid because of that. And for years, uh, for 10 years, my wife at the time, she wanted kids and I didn't want kids only because I didn't want to be my father. Because you carry that inside of your blood and you carry that inside your history and your story. But I had my son like six and a half years ago now and I'm totally the opposite type of father. I didn't know I would be that. So I feel like in a lot of ways I've broken some of that, but not me really. It's more, I get to experience myself through his eyes and relive the parts that I, I don't remember anything until I'm about 12 years old. Everything else is completely blocked out. So a lot of times when he's experiencing something for the first time, I experience it for the first time too, through how, how I was. Because he's a very like emotional kid and he's very like uh, intuitive kid. So I get to see that. And it's hard, you know, Puerto Rico had that, that huge hurricane and Puerto Rico used to be this amazing place that is an incredible agricultural land. And so is Cuba in the same way. And the people have turned their back on the land in a lot of ways. It's, they're very urban and they're very... So I don't, I don't see a lot of myself in today's Puerto Rican culture. I also don't see a lot of myself in any culture. So I feel kind of listless in that way. I didn't grow up in a religious community. I didn't grow up with any of those things that sort of ground you. So the only thing that has ground me has been the forest, but that has also isolated me in a lot of ways. I feel a lot less empathy for people and a lot more empathy for non-human beings. So I don't know if that's a good thing or bad thing. It does make me good at, my, at what I do, but it makes me kind of, I think bad as a partner. And, but that's sort of like neither here nor there for me as far as my work is concerned. But my lineage and my heritage, there wasn't a lot of models to sort of show what was um, healthy and what was not. And I think that has a lot to do with my family specifically, very poor, grew up in the projects and then when I was 12 I moved to I moved here so so I don't really know where I belong still and I think that that's a lot of what I carry with me now so I've given up on humans in a lot of ways and I've stuck to the forest I think I have a, a good follow-up question to that because I would argue that there are probably a lot of people out there like you and I was wondering if in this space in particular, or if in any way, the work that you're doing at the Horn Farm could at some point or will at some point be in collaboration with the local, you know, inner city York and working with, working with people who have, who don't think that they have any connection to the land or to food outside of a corner store or you know, don't have connection to worlds that aren't full of human-fueled trauma and violence. You know, what what kind of work do you think, do you envision doing it with this space and like in the future with programming? When I was here one day a week, was it one day a week when I was here? I would come because there was a volunteer with the, um, it was eighth graders who are, these are the kids that everybody says are not worth that much. And uh, they're either have abusive childhoods like mine, or they didn't do well in school like I didn't either. And I got to work with them in the forest and they were so disconnected. Uh, and I'll tell you a story, it's a funny story, but it's actually not funny. It shows a lot. 
There was a boy here who spoke almost no English whatsoever. He was a real bad, he was just one of those kids. He didn't want anyone to tell him anything. That's me, that's how I grew up. So I didn't pressure him. I let the work do the, do the healing, the work. I don't need to say anything, the work does it for me. Lifting and he was, his hands were dirty and his pants were dirty at the end of the three hours or whatever they were here. And he goes up to the instructor who comes with them and he goes, do I just throw these away? Do I just throw these pants away? And she's like, no, you just wash them. He's like, this is gonna come out. Like dirt is gonna come out. It's the first time he had ever gotten dirty. It's the first time he had ever used his hands or his body for the first time. And that's really what sold me on that the work is the healing part. Not what I say about it, not anything. The work itself was more powerful than I could ever be in saying, well, my childhood was like yours. It's like, I just want to say, and I would say at the end, you're doing a great job. And they'd be like, oh, I am doing something positive. And that's really all I needed when I was young. I had my seventh grade teacher, which would, when I would leave, when I would try to leave, she would lock me into the room and she would say, you have to finish all your homework for the day. It was the first person that ever was like, oh, you have more than what people say you have. You don't have to go to, you don't have to be bad to get attention. Because when I would get A's, nobody paid attention. When I got F's, everyone would, get, would pay attention. So uh, breaking that cycle for them and saying you're doing a great job and letting the work and saying that they have purpose is a huge thing. Expanding on that, we've been trying to figure out how to expand on that. The people who were running that program were not so awesome. So it sort of dwindled, not because of us, but because of um, just the people running that program. So this just happened yeah. this weekend. The work with the high school kids was just transformative, I think, for me personally, to see what a difference it made, because by the end of that semester, those kids were the ones teaching people what was going on in the woods. They were the ones that were proud. They weren't sullen anymore. They were engaged. They loved it here. And it was really just the man who was responsible for the program made that program go away. We were ready to bolster that and make it bigger. And then we did this year have uh, the opportunity to start working with the Boys and Girls Club of Lancaster County. And I'll let John talk a little bit more about how we were going to run that, but Will run that. He just had, hit a little administrative snafu. But I wanted to say that I got in contact with somebody at McCaskey who's willing to start up. And McCaskey is the Lancaster City, and he, he's willing to bring kids who won't have an opportunity to do things like this again. He'll go through the hoops to get it going. and. But yeah, we had an opportunity to work with the Boys and Girls Club that I'll let John talk about. Yeah, we, um, we're starting a pilot program with the Boys and Girls Club in Columbia and um, tying that in with the Lancaster Clubhouse as well, where we are, I'm, I'm basically spending throughout the year multiple sessions with the staff of the, of the Boys and Girls Club, teaching the staff sort of gardening basics and helping them design the gardens on site so that the staff themselves can then take it to the children at multiple occasions and so we have the intention of, of running like I said this is a pilot program and hopefully we can kind of redesign based on the successes or, or less than that of this and then expand out to other boys and girls clubs we you know we're a land-based organization so most of the education that we do is on site for the most part um, and we've looked at and had lots of conversations about how to make that open to either underserved communities or folks that maybe can't afford to pay for a workshop so we have scholarship policies written up that we're hopefully going to roll out soon and hopefully that can be one mechanism where we can make it more available to the folks that need it. So I'm going to open it up 
to make sure that we can have at least a handful of uh, questions from the class. I think to, to make it go quickly, if like just one of you could field the, the question and then let someone else a uh, ask. Um, yeah, I'm really curious, um, since all of you share these ideals of permaculture and regeneration, how you see it pertaining to like the organizational structure. And that leads to my second question of like, how do you make financial decisions within the organization? How do you make financial decisions like wages, salaries, how you spend money? So the organizational structure is as mutually collaborative as possible, recognizing that certain people have to make decisions for certain things. So we, Wilson mentioned that we, we come to each other, we have built-in mechanisms for communicating what we're working on. And that started uh, about four years ago because there were, as they're often in, in not just nonprofits, but in organizations, there are committees that get in silos and they stop talking to each other about what they're working on, which creates frustration, wasted resources, people doing or undoing things that other people in the organization are trying to work on. So we implemented a, a monthly meeting we called the Uber meeting, which was um, meaning overarching, and we would bring together representatives from each of the committees or projects to talk about what was happening so that there would be a natural coordination. So four years later, we still have monthly Uber meetings. They last about an hour. And as more of the coordination has gone to the staff level rather than volunteers, now it's also an educational opportunity. Mostly board members are the ones who attend those. We also record them and have people call in if they can call in. So they get posted and people can listen to them as a podcast, those meetings. As for the financial Decision-making, it's a collaborative process where we budget together. It takes us about from August until November to put together a budget, both program income and expenses for the next year. And wages and salaries are, are part of that discussion, bringing people on full-time, where's the money gonna come from? So I make um, salary decisions for my staff based on the budget, and then the uh, board of directors determines my salary. Thanks for sharing with us, guys. Wilson, there are a couple of things that you said that I just wanted to ask you about and, and really open up to the rest of you guys. And John, you mentioned how your children, you know, are sort of that measurement of time and stuff. And so feel free to speak to your experience as a parent or, uh, but really working with the youth population is something that I hope to do because knowing that, you know, the seeds that I sow, the, the oak trees that I plant, I'm not gonna see those fruits. And how do I prepare that generation to be able to continue to do the reparation and, you know, continue to work in these same paths? What do you find working with those youth, uh, the youth population, especially the disenfranchised and the, the forgotten, shall we? Um, what do you find that connects uh, you with them and, and, and even them with the landscape, just as even as a parent or just as an educator? Well, I have an advantage in that I was disenfranchised, so I can speak what they speak. I can talk like they talk. I like hip hop music and I grew up with that. And I like, we, we, so we, I can talk music with them. The thing is when no one likes to be talked down to, right? And I meet them exactly where they are as quickly and as efficiently as I possibly can. And I try not to give lessons. I let the work 
do the work. And that has been my epiphany in the last year and a half is you don't actually have to say anything. You find tasks that seem incredibly difficult physically, so it shuts their mind off for a while, which they never get to do. They don't attach to that social media part of it. A lot of them were like, can I bring my parents here to show them the, you know, like all on their own, they, and, and give them the thing that it's their project as much as it is your project. They're not coming in on your project. If they have their sweat into it, it's also their project. You can't take it away from them. So always making sure, look at our path, look at our bridge. It's not my bridge, thanks for helping me, see you guys later. So, because I, I know that's what I needed when I was younger, people would always be like, you did a good job, thanks for helping with this thing. And I never really got that. So what I do is I always just engage them as a human being first, and not as a person who's coming to help, but as a person who's part of the project and we couldn't do it without them. And I do that with all my classes, with my stewards, with everything. I make sure that they are as invested in it as their own project, as it is the Horn Farms project or my own project or whatever we're working on at the time, meeting them where they are and making sure that you, I empower them as much as I can so they can continue. And I know I really can't teach anything except give them that positivity and say, you can do this. That was super hard and you have to work together. And you know, that type of, that type of thing. That's what I found works. And that was John Darby, Allison Earl, and Wilson Alvarez. You'll find links to where you can find them in the show notes, including to past interviews involving John and Wilson, as well as the moderators, Benjamin Weiss and Robin Mello. I'd like to thank Ben and Robin for inviting the podcast to join them for the day so we could share this with you, and to photographer John Staley for making the trip as I was unable to attend myself. I love the shared story of these three presenters speaking around a set of common questions, and why I like to include roundtables like these and the others recorded over the years on the show. We get to hear a diversity of voices speaking around one idea. Though any moment, given question, or particular response leads to greater reflection, the one that stays with me leaving this roundtable regards the inquiry into one's ancestral history and how that impacts our work and view of the world. As the descendant of Appalachian hillbillies, and a 19th century German immigrant, I often find myself considering the ways that familial culture brought me to where I am today. How stories of growing up poor in West Virginia led my mother's family to focus on people. Often, folks I didn't know, and remain unsure if we were related by blood or marriage, or at all, we called family. Anyone who would join us for a meal was free to eat with us, to attend a barbecue or a backyard cookout, to join in our songs around a campfire. And from those roots, I came to care about individuals and the community we create. And one immigrant, my great-great-grandfather man, arrived in the second half of the 1800s, where he came to Pennsylvania and fought in the American Civil War, before meeting an American woman and settling in southern Maryland to farm. Together, their son taught my grandfather to farm, and in turn, my grandfather taught my father. Though I did not grow up on the land, as my family no longer farmed by the 1980s, the soil still ran through me as we planted seeds, as we dug into the ground, as my father and I planted trees in the yard on Arbor Day, so that by the time I was a teenager, there was shade to sit under, even if the branches weren't quite high enough to climb. I've carried those times, stories of past generations, and experiences for my entire life. 
I see them all as leading me directly to this path of creating the Permaculture Podcast and retaining a love of Earth, people, and to share the bounty of life. Do you have any stories like these which led you on your journey? I'd love to hear from you. Call 717-827-6266, email show at thepermaculturepodcast.com, or write The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. From here, the next episode will be David Bilbrey's conversation with Kevin Jones, after having to move the release schedule around a little bit. Until then, spend each day living into your gifts, remembering the stories of your ancestors, and hearing the new tales of your community, while taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.